Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Nancy Gift. We're going to talk about aquaponics. Uh, she's the competent chair of sustainability at Berea College, which is a socially preventive studies, also chair of the sustainability department. So again, we're going to talk about her research and her work. Nancy, thank you for coming. Glad to be here. Thanks, Richard. If you would, give me a bit of background. How did you get to where you're at today? Well, without knowing how much detail you want me to go into, my background in general is in agriculture. So I did my PhD in weed science, and I've written a couple of books on managing weeds in lawns and communities. And when I came to Berea, we had an aquaponics program that was run by a gentleman who's now retired, Richard Olson. And it was really a labor of love for him to run this aquaponics program. But I came into that and uh, and it stayed his baby. And then when he retired, we had some discussions about what to do with it next. And uh, it didn't make sense to keep going. So I've kept on doing my own work with teaching weed management and teaching intro sustainability and anything from math modeling of sustainability writing. So, yeah. For listeners that don't know, what is aquaponics? So the difference between aquaponics and hydroponics is that with aquaponics, there are fish growing as well as the plants. And so what we had was a system with fish living in big tanks, and then their waste got filtered out to or got shuttled over to other basically tanks, containers where we were growing basil and a variety of other plants, depending on what the student interests were at that time. So you have a tank of fish and then the waste from the fish, I guess the fish group, you can call it, filters through, filters through a bed of plants and then the plants clean and take nutrients out of the you know, quote unquote dirty water. And then once the plants have done the filtering, does it go right back into the fish tank or, you know, are things added to it? Yes. Or what, is it a closed it, it, system? It was a, in terms of water, it was a closed system. Yeah. Except for we added fish food. So that wasn't the way the system was originally designed in the first place. So the system was designed to be sort of like, but not exactly, one of these living machines. I understand that's copyrighted. I've seen one run really well up at Powder Mill Research Center in um, in Pitt, outside of Pittsburgh. They have like their restrooms from their visitor center actually go to fish and then get processed through plants and then it's a closed system and then that same water goes back and flushes the toilets. So that's a truly closed system because the fish weren't fed. 
But this system that we had at Berea was designed to do that, except we are a student labor college, a work college. And so what we found was that among other problems, students didn't seem to want to be assigned to work in the um, in the sewage treatment plant. So that was- I wonder tough. why most of them wouldn't. <laughs> right, right. It was just kind of a tough sell. And then it had some other issues. So it wasn't really as odor-free as it was supposed to be. And there were a couple of other little things. So so they ended up transitioning it from being the sewage treatment for this portion of campus into a fish and plant aquaponics center. So when they did that, then we had to feed the fish. Mm. Um, so an aquaponics setup done right, does it smell? Does it, uh, is it pleasant no. to work around or is it like ugh? No, and this one did not have any, odor. like once we got out of the business of dealing with student um, sewage, the plants and the fish, there was no odor. It was a really pleasant place to be, actually. Students enjoyed it in winter, especially because it was basically set up in a greenhouse. So that was a pretty nice arrangement. So um, if if someone's going to eat either the plants or the fish or both in an aquaponic setup, um, what's needed to make sure that that's safe? Like the person won't get sick and they'll get adequate nutrition. And can you eat both or you can only eat one yeah. to keep the system going? No, you can absolutely eat both. I think the only thing that we were careful of is that the plants were growing in sort of floats. And that way, the leaves that we were harvesting were not really in regular contact with the fish poo. But yeah, that, you know, we eat plants all the time that are processed through poop. I mean, that's like, you know, whether whether or not we intend to, even our gardens, you know, there's all kinds of little animal poo and stuff like that. So whether or not we like to think of it, our fish and our plants are regularly in as much or more contact with poo than the ones would be in an aquaponics facility. And it is perfectly safe. That's cool. Okay. So what are some of the major um, elements of aquaponics? Like what, what needs to be done to make sure it works right? And what kind of problems are common? Right. So there's the level of oxygen in the water has to be sort of pumped in appropriately. So that's one of the big things. So the water has to be kept circulating and oxygenated. That makes a big difference on what kind of bacteria you get. So that helps keep it safe. Yeah, there were uh, temperature issues. So we used solar thermal panels to help heat the water in winter, but you've got to sort of have the water at the right temperature, especially for the fish. The plants are a little more forgiving, but but both can have problems if the temperature isn't correct, you know? And so it does, it does require regular electricity, like on a consistent basis because of the, um, the filtering and the oxygenating of the water. So you have to have some way to keep that going. So it's like a fish, well, the fish tank part, right? You have to have a pump and yeah. an oxygenator. And- right. It's really not that much more complicated in some like big picture ways than a good fish tank. You know, hmm. so if you're familiar with raising fish in a tank, then you can probably do this. In a regular fish tank, you know, you're trying to filter out, I mean, the, the poop and all that stuff, the debris builds up, but this is more of like a flow system. So is it easier or harder or just different and why? It's just different because you're not trying to use a part of the tank to filter it out. Like usually in a fish tank, there is a filter within it, but in this case, Instead of filtering, we're basically pumping the water through the plant parts of the system. So you still have to keep the water moving, but you're just moving it to different places sort of to clean it. And then you put it back in the fish tanks when it's been cleaned. 
and like you said, you're feeding the fish, you know, they have to eat so they can poop. So right. is the only in- input fish food or, you know, what are some of the inputs and what are Correct. some of the things you have to do to maintain the system? Right. So the big physical input was the fish food. And that was actually expensive enough that unless we marketed the fish better, then we couldn't make that like break even. It was it was going to be a consistently money eating proposition, which is not necessarily a big problem. But then you have the electricity and then also the labor, because there was a certain amount of labor of just making sure all the tubes were unstopped and making sure all the oxygen was right and the flow was going and the temperature was right. So it did require student labor. Like I think students think of most students think of their jobs as being one of these things where like, oh yeah, it's the school year. So I'll go to my work study job. But for these students, they had to understand that these fish ate on Thanksgiving, these fish eat on Christmas. And so we had to figure out, you know, students who wanted to work over holidays, for example. So it it took a lot of consistent labor hours, not necessarily a lot of hours, but there had to be some consistency to the students who were willing to work in there. Well, what, what kind of fish, first of all, are, are good for aquaponics versus not? And, and what do they eat? Right. We were um, mostly doing tilapia. I think there were, we had some catfish in there at times. There were a few others, but honestly, I don't really remember. It's been a few years, but the tilapia and the catfish were the big ones. Okay. And what do they eat? Do they like fish pellets made by some company yeah, or can they eat Exactly. Right. Right. We we're just feeding them fish pellets like in big bags, like industrial size bags of fish food. Well, have you, yeah. have you looked at like other aquaponic systems? Or, you know, I'm sure there's people out there that, you know, that right, come so up with all kinds of things you could feed fish, right? Most supplements are taken on faith and could take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. There are all kinds of things you could feed fish. And, you know, we're in a small town. I don't know that those things existed. But, for example, there's a really good aquaponics setup at this place called Food Chain in Lexington. And Food Chain is a partnership between basically three organizations. One's a an aquaponics facility, one's a brewery, and the brewery the brewery waste goes in to feed the fish. And then the fish get harvested and cooked by this restaurant called Smithtown Foods. It's a Weta Michael restaurant, quite good. And then so people sit at the bar and they order the food from the restaurant and they get the fish that's been eating the brewery waste. And it's a really nice system. We just weren't really set up to do that. Like it would have taken some coordination and somebody to really love the whole system. So Food Chain and Wessex Brewery and Smithtown Foods that employs a number of people and, you know, full-time folks. And so that's a great system that works well. We didn't have the labor infrastructure for that kind of system. So, I mean, yours is more of like a bench scale type thing, but these larger systems, are they economically viable if people are eating the fish and eating the plants and they're being think, replaced or is it, are they yeah. tough to make it work? I think there's some challenges. It'd be good to talk to the food chain people if you wanted to hear more details on how they make it work. But I think one of the things that makes the system work 
is first of all, the fact that the food is very cheap with the Smithtown Foods um, food chain system, because of course it's waste grain, right? It's like post brewery. So the food is cheap. And also then the fish are very up marketed. And then they also get grants because they do a lot of food and sort of culinary and sustainability education for kids in the aquaponics facility. And so they'll have kids either pay to come in or they'll have kids who are grant funded to come in and get an education out of that. And so I think that system works pretty well, but there's definitely some marketing, both of the experience of seeing the aquaponics, which we did not market that as an experience. We certainly never charged admission, though we definitely had tours. And and I don't want to undersell the size of this. Like this was, these tanks were like half the size of a room. Like this was a pretty decent sized greenhouse and we had three fish tanks that size. So it was pretty good scale. So it wasn't really about scale. It was more about the marketing. So we we would sell the fish. We'd be like, okay, students who live in this dorm, if you want to come buy some fish, they're like a dollar a pound. Well, obviously that's not a good price for a fish, right? But we couldn't predict and have a regular, we didn't know exactly when we were going to have enough fish. So we couldn't market it to like restaurants. And that meant that we had to sell it for less money. How many fish were at work? And like, what was the, you know, with their normal breeding schedule, how many? We actually were, so that was the other thing is we were actually buying young fish, not breeding them. You can breed them, but that was beyond our scale. So that was another financial input I forgot about. But we were running probably 50 fish at a time in those big tanks. Okay. So not tiny, but, you know, I think one of the things with one of the challenges with all small scale agriculture, and it doesn't matter whether it's aquaponics or, you know, backyard tomatoes, if you're a large scale farmer, then you can predict like, I'm going to harvest at least this many tomatoes per season or this many per week from this date to this date. And you can say basically, okay, we're going to make a deal because I'll sell you this many tomatoes. But when you get down to small scale, I mean, I have tomatoes in my garden. I don't know whether I'm going to have three tomatoes this week or 20, right? And it's very similar with small-scale aquaponics that you don't know exactly when you're going to have so much basil that you need to be like giving it away with bows on it. And when you're going to have so little basil that like you can't even promise that you'd have any. Hmm. Did you guys think about setting up like a CSA, a local CSA to take the produce and stuff that you were making, you know, the fish and everything? or Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you.
again, didn't nope, go that because far. that would have involved having outsiders come into the college and pay, and then we would have had to have the students ready to do customer interface. So mm. remember, this was an educational purpose kind of thing, and uh, and we were trying to think of what sort of made sense. So we didn't think about going that direction because it wouldn't have made sense for the energy and the expertise we had. But definitely, people can do that, right? It's it's possible. What you probably would have had to do is like the project would have been a business for the school and you'd have to get, let's say, the marketing department if there was one and they would run part of it. And then the department you were in would run part of it. But it sounds like it would have taken, again, personnel from different aspects of the school would have had to been a a whole business in order to be viable. Right. And and the school has other businesses. Right. So like we we kind of have a sense of what that takes. Like we have a student crafts business, you know, and they make things regularly for the public and have a catalog and everything. We have a college farm store. So we sell produce and and meats that are grown at the college. So we know how to do these things. But therefore, we also knew how much it would take. And it was just more than this facility and the people we had ready to do it were ready to take on. I understand. Well, what are some surprising or interesting things that you learned or the students learned from doing the aquaponics? Let's see. I think the big one for students often was sort of the relentlessness of the consistency with which you have to pay attention to it. So it's not, it's not, again, it's not that it's so many hours to make that system work, but every single day you have to go do it. So, you know, you go on vacation, you have to have someone who's qualified and kind of knows what they're doing to go in and take care of that system for a few days. It's not something like a cat where you can just fill up the food bowl and leave for the weekend. So I think that was probably one of the things that surprised students most was just how relentless the work is. Again, not huge, just it doesn't quit. And I know that the students who work at the college farm also basically get that lesson. Like if they're taking care of the chickens, it does not matter if it snowed two feet that day, the chickens actually need to eat or they will die. In fact, they need to eat more because the weather was bad. So it's a really good lesson in accountability. I think it was probably also for them a lesson in marketing at some point, because they sort of knew that they were raising both really good herbs and really good fish. And they had this good food product. But, you know, if somebody's not willing to come in and basically buy a freshly killed fish, you know, scales and all, then that takes work to make it kind of palatable and ready for customers. So I think it helped the students appreciate that even though aquaponics theoretically is such a good system that there are a lot of different pieces to it if you actually want it to make financial sense. Yeah. I guess it would have been like a, you know, become a fish parent for a semester type program or a year. Right. Right. Less responsibility than regular kids, but still. Right. But yeah, it's right. Like we, I don't know if you have this thing in your high school where kids who took a certain class, you know, they take home an egg for the weekend and they have to take care of it and make sure it doesn't break. Oh, uh, I remember we, we did You that, know, yeah. it's like that, but on steroids and yeah. And generally speaking, we were able to find good students to do it, but then that was like their whole job. Like that would be 15 hours a week and that was what they needed to do. And then we'd make sure we had students for holidays and it's kind of a relentless thing as a supervisor too. In a way that, you know, if you're a supervisor to a teaching assistant, like whatever, they they don't, they're kind of happy if they don't have work for a week. Like, okay, yeah, I've graded the midterms, we're all done. You can, you know, go do your own schoolwork. 
but this work study position was seriously like can always there. Yeah, I understand. Um, it, did you, is there a, like a ballpark calculation of how many hours is required to take care of how many fish and plants? I never thought about it from a, um, for like per fish or per plant kind of thing. I know that the system we had, you know, with again, that sort of 50 to a hundred fish. And I don't think between 50 and a hundred, there's like a great deal of increased labor to it, except just pouring in more food. But that was definitely, we had two labor students assigned to that every semester that it was running. And that was, oh, but they were, they were both part-time or they were both 15 hour week because they were like work study. So two 15 hour week work study labor students. Okay. So it sounds like like almost one full-time person for yeah, about, I, you know, let's say I think it is really one full-time person because then Richard Olson was putting in a lot of his own work to make it like to do the supervising and to sort of oversee the whole thing. So I think one full-time person, but again, you have to think about like all the things we weren't doing, like we weren't marketing the produce and the fish. Right. And we weren't. Yeah. So there were, I'd say it's a full-time person job just to make it run but that's not to make it run profitably. Okay, I understand. Um, and I so, don't mean to be a downer about aquaponics. It's just like, I hear people talking about aquaponics. One of the things that I think is important to realize about aquaponics is like, or hydroponics, either one, is that somehow you've got, like, it's not just making water flow in the system and then you don't need, like you still need nutrients and whether you're feeding fish or whether you're buying fertilizer for the plants, like, it's not a substitute for soil, right? That soil does, I think to me, one of the big lessons about working with aquaponics is how much work soil does for us that when we grow in the ground, we don't have to do that work. And so when you move to hydroponics or aquaponics, then suddenly humans have to do that work that the soil was doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So have, has anyone that you know of or you studied the nutritional result differences in plants grown hydroponically versus in soil, for instance, or under LEDs versus full spectrum you know, sunlight? Probably. But again, it's all about like, how good is your soil? How, what kind of nutrients are you putting in? How many fish are you growing? So like how many, you know, how much fish waste is going in there? So like, it's, it's partly about the nutrient quality and fish poop is very high quality nutrients for plants. Like it's, it's pretty much complete. You don't need to add additional nutrients in proportion, but again, you, you can't really compare aquaponics and ground grown plants unless you know more about the soil and unless you know what the source of nutrients was for the plants. But I will say that, you know, the plants that you can grow hydroponically or aquaponically, you know, have everything they need right? Like it's all there, but in aquaponics or hydroponics, it's there because some person did some monitoring and made sure it was all there. And in soil, often you can get away with just kind of throwing the plant in the ground and running, doing some. Well, I mean, you could do a, a ballpark calculation. I know it depends on the soils and everything, but you know, if someone had, I don't know, uh, plants from five different farms and compared them to, uh, you know, five different aquaponics setups, maybe you can get some ballpark info on it. I, I don't mean to sound obnoxious, but I'm not sure you realize how highly variable soil is, like extremely. So taking five different plant fields, I mean, in when I was working in agriculture, basically you couldn't even publish a study unless you'd done the study on the plants in like 
three different fields over at least two different years. And that's just to look at something that's going on in the field, not trying to compare like a field system to an aquaponics system. You can definitely compare, but I don't think you can really make a generalization because in aquaponics and hydroponics, you're adding to that system. So you just have to make sure you add what the plants need. I got you. I know it'd be hard to be precise, but you know, if you saw dramatic differences, maybe that would, uh, that would provide a signal But if the, if the differences weren't dramatic, then I can see it'd be very hard to, to tease that out. Yeah. I it's, that'd be a big study. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Okay. No, it's good to know. I, I appreciate you telling me. So what, what is some of the research that uh, you're doing now? You know, let's leave aquaponics. Well, maybe yeah. we're not leaving it. You're still doing it, but what are you working on right now? One of the things I've been working on is a book about weeds for the Iowa press called super weeds. It's sort of about, it's to some extent about um, weed weeds that are resistant to herbicides, but also just the complexity of weed management in general. I'm also really interested in how weeds and the natural environment outside are indications of environmental injustice problems. So for example, um, the kind of weeds that grow in abandoned lots, like what do they say about the soil, about how long the lot has been abandoned, about what the quality of the environment was before. So I, I have kind of a range of interests. And then one of, I just frankly really enjoy the teaching at the college. So I t- last spring I was teaching it, um, a class on sustainable communities and we were looking at crafts and um environmental justice issues in Appalachian communities. I've taught environmental justice. Um, I teach environmental economics. So I just really enjoy the variety of teaching. Yeah. Um, well, I'm happy to answer me, more about any details there. Honestly, like we're yeah, not, no, we're no, not no, a research no, college. So yeah. the, um, the weeds you mentioned growing in abandoned lots, what, what came to that? What, what did that tell you about the condition of, well, I guess it wasn't a lot, there was some dirt there, but. What does it tell you about the underlying soil? Depending on what weeds are growing there, the weeds can help improve the soil. They may be taking up heavy metals, say from lead, from old paint or something like that. Um, They tell you something about the plants that are growing in the nearby environment. They tell you basically if the lawn was healthy before the house got abandoned. So if the lawn was kind of bare dirt, then you'd have a different population of weeds than if it was sort of a healthy lawn that just went to hell. So it's, I'd say for me, calling it research is probably a strong word at this point, but it's definitely an interest and a curiosity. So well, I just keep actually, looking. When, when, you say, um, when you say healthy lawn, though, I mean, healthy meaning a lawn that was treated with oh, chemicals. All the no, time, no, or, excuse me. Yeah, like no, sorry. Lawn. My definition of a healthy lawn is a lawn that is well filled in with lots of different green stuff, but that might be clover and plantain and, and grass, but you know, wild strawberries and violets. I mean, to me, a healthy lawn is definitely one that has a lot of biodiversity in it and is, but I think what makes it a healthy lawn as opposed to just a healthy, you know, patch of ground is that a lawn does have this quality of being relatively green across, you know, at, a uniform height um, and across the year. So, you know, to me, a healthy lawn here in Kentucky would be one that, you know, isn't crispy brown in the heat of summer, but also is not like just Bermuda grass, dead brown in winter, like a lot of lawns in the deep South are. So 
I definitely value a, a healthy biodiverse lawn. Well, again, even though it's not formal research, it's okay. I mean, you still make observations. You know, you can right. denigrate them and call them anecdotal, but, you know, who cares? Right. No, what, I, so what did you learn from so far from studying weeds and lots? Like, what do you observe and why are you curious about it? Um, I'm curious about it because so often when houses are abandoned, we we don't necessarily ever get the human story of what happened there. Um, and so to some extent, the plants can tell us what kind of neglect happened in what order. So like, let's say vines are overtaking your house, right? Like at some level, that's kind of pretty and charming and all of that. But it also means that you weren't weed whacking around the edges of your house. And, and frankly, your siding's probably getting damaged by it, right? So there's this ecology of suburbia where we do actually want to keep the houses in good shape because, you know, somebody put the energy in to build them. And if they're in good shape, then we don't have to build new houses, right? So there's that. But at the same time, we're trying to allow some space for birds and for other healthy ecologies. Like I, one of the things I do in my garden is I use rocks as mulch, like big you know, field rocks kind of thing. And the nice thing is snakes like to live under those rocks. And I'm always thrilled when I see those little garden snakes slithering around my plants on a sunny day. Um, I know a lot of gardeners really freak out about that, but I have to say I have less respect for a gardener that isn't A, making space for snakes and B, kind of appreciating them for being there. Okay, that's cool. Um, any patterns or trends, you know, in addition to the weeds that you see, like you spoke about vines, are there any telltale weeds that show signs of trouble in a given yard or a lot? If I'm seeing big annual weeds like lamb's quarters, that's like recent neglect. If I'm seeing weeds like ailanthus or tree of heaven, that's the same plant, that's a little bit longer term neglect. And that one's really hard to get out because once if you start cutting it, it actually just sprouts more from the ground. So with that one, you've got to get it out carefully. But that weed is also, I have a lot of respect for Ailanthus because it grows really well in high pollution areas. So it's not necessarily that the weeds are, like people don't appreciate them and they're not necessarily the favorite plant that we want in that place, but the weeds can tell us a little bit about that space. So the fact that Ailanthus tolerates pollution really well, you've probably, maybe you've heard of the tr- the book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And that book from the 40s was about a neighborhood in New York City in Brooklyn that had like a single giant tree, right? And this kid really appreciated it. And there was other aspects to the story, but that tree was a tree of heaven, invasive Ailanthus, you know? And so that was the only tree this kid had, right? And so it's a weed, but it's also like the best that environment could produce at that time because New York City was pretty polluted then. So- I'm I'm interested in the weeds as kind of an indication of the habitat quality for humans too. Are there any plants that can de- be deliberately planted on? Well, I know brown fields is a huge issue. Right. Are there are there other plants that could be planted to rejuvenate someone's yard, make it a bit easier for them to have grass later on or something, or is it just you got to kind of tear everything up and start from the from scratch? You definitely don't have to tear everything up. If it's been sprayed, then you typically have to wait a couple of years before you can do anything too exciting, but just waiting will be fine. But uh, Dutch white clover, it is sort of technically an invasive in the sense that it's not native here, but at the same time, Dutch white clover doesn't go invading natural areas. Dutch white clover um, used to be put 
as a seed in lawn seed mixes. But when they started selling the herbicides that would control weeds and lawns, like they really wanted a use for 2,4-D and these other herbicides. And they had to basically switch tactics and advertise that clover was a weed because it, all the herbicides that they had that would kill dandelions and other weeds in the lawn would also kill clover. So in order for them to successfully sell those herbicides, they had to launch this basically smear campaign against a perfectly good plant and tell people that it was bad. So if you plant clover in your lawn, it helps fix nitrogen. It's low growing. It's green year round. It tolerates dog pee really well. It tolerates a reasonable amount of traffic. It doesn't need mowing as badly as grass does. Um, So I would say that's kind of your magic lawn plant to add. I don't know if there's a lot of HOAs in the the city you live in, but if there are some, do they, is there any politics of them classifying plants as weeds when they shouldn't be? Yeah, there's, there's some interesting studies there. The place I live does not have those, but for example, a lot of times the HOA will simply say weeds cannot grow past a certain height, but they ignore the fact that the definition of a weed is a plant out of place. Like there's not like a standard list of weeds, right? So if you're in a, HOA area and you know, I have clover growing in my yard and I want it there, then it's really hard for them to argue unless they have a specific list of plants that aren't allowed to be growing. So what I found is the best weapon for homeowners is to actually know what plants are growing in their lawn. If they know the Latin names for them, so much the better, because there's nothing that shuts a police officer with a ruler up faster than saying, but this is my you know, Dutch white clover and you give them the genus and species name and they're like, oh, I had no idea because they have no idea, right? So just knowing what species of plants you have in your lawn and being able to label like, this is what I have and I want it. That usually is almost impossible for the HOA to fight, even if they want to. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure they just label stuff as weeds because of, you know, they eyeball it, but right, unless they have a specific list. How can they say something's a weed versus not? But, you know, right. it just came to mind. I just wondered. Oh, yeah. No, it's really fascinating. One of my advisors in grad school was actually called to testify in court in Louisville because there was this woman who claimed her yard was a uh, like a nature preserve. And it was just packed with weeds. Right. But she knew what she had and she wanted it there. And so when he went to court as a as a professional weed scientist, he basically had to say, yeah, there's not actually any definition of a weed that would mean that if that would say that even if she wants this, it's still a weed. If basically he was like, if she says she wants this plant here, it's her plant. Like it's it's a garden plant magically just by leaving. I don't even think he really liked her yard. He just like professionally had to testify that way because that was the truth. Yeah. No, that's kind of funny. Um, have you tried any experiments like in your yard? I hope you have a yard, but if you do, I do have a yard. Yeah, I really enjoy it. My experiments currently are that I have two chicken coops and I migrate them around the yard to make sure the chickens get fresh grass. And so I guess my experiments currently are, uh, how long can I leave the chickens in one spot before I have to reseed the grass and the uh, clover, you know, and then we just try not to try not to mow too much when the clover's blooming and stuff like that to give the bees some food. My Any interesting experiments you're doing? Okay. No, not really. I'm not doing controlling. I'm not doing like proper scientific controls or replication. So as someone who went to grad school in 
you know, control and replication for experiments. There's a lot of things I try, but I'm not going to call them experiments. Yeah, they're not, you know, placebo control, double blind, that kind of stuff. But they're right. just, they're, I guess, home experiments, you know? Yes, plenty of home experiments. Like this year, I, I'm in a new yard. We got flooded out from the Kentucky River last year, so we moved. And in the yard we're in now, I planted tomatoes in three different places to see where they did best. It sort of surprised me where they did best, but, you know, that patch has plenty of tomatoes. And the other places I planted them, the tomatoes lived, but they're just kind of, eh. So I probably should have done some soil testing, but I can use, like, I wasn't so invested in these plants that I couldn't just use looking at the plant to say, oh, yeah, that probably needs some more fertilizer for better fertility there. I could okay, also any other um, any other interesting uh, projects you're working on, or you think that's a good you know overview of what you're working on? I think that's a pretty good sample. Yeah, I'm just always trying to plant new trees in places, but that's not really a work. That's just like you know, climate change is eating us. So any any place that I have, like my husband's a priest at an Episcopal church nearby, and so I just try to make sure that each winter we plant lots of trees there. Um, and I kind of quietly do it when people on the church aren't looking and, you know, then I put nice labels on it and everybody thinks it was there all the time. That's like my kind of rebellion is planting trees where people didn't ask for them. Yeah, no, that's great. That's excellent. Well, Nancy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, how can people find out more about your work? Where can they go? Berea College website. They can definitely look at my faculty page on the Berea College website. I also... The first book I wrote from Beacon Press, A Weed by Any Other Name, if they're interested in the lawn weeds, that I is a good read. I think it's not still available from Beacon, but you can find it online. So I hope they'll find that. Okay, very good. Nancy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, good to talk to you, Richard. Take care. Remember, before you go, to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing, all-natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to GeniusPollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GeniusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.